genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. Uh, all stemmed from about 13 years ago. I had a accident. I broke my leg and my ankle and I was depressed and ended up in quite a dark place. And Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne, I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al, I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Well, we're coming to you today from the island of Sicily. From hell. <laughs> you might notice that there'll be some sweat running down our faces because uh, we're in a lovely house, but it's 44 degrees outside and we obviously we've got our studio lights on and stuff. We've got the windows, well, the, the, the blinds open to try and get a decent amount of light. So if you do see us sweating, then it's not the content, it's the weather. It's been intense. I think this is like day 10 now of this type of temperature. And it just doesn't get cool at night. Like it's like it's 38 degrees by half past eight in the morning. What is that about? Anyway, enough about our first world problems. How are you? Yeah, how are you? How are you? you, you we haven't heard from you on LinkedIn for a while. Go onto LinkedIn, search for Truth, Lies and Work. You'll find us. We're freaking everywhere on there. We're, uh, we, we like to post stuff. So get involved. Talk to us. Yeah. So today we're talking about the future of well-being. As you've probably noticed, well-being has definitely increased in people's perception over the last sort of maybe decade. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was only really for the for the IBMs of the world. Now most people are thinking about well-being. Um, the, the pandemic has probably accelerated a little bit as well, because obviously we've all been a bit more aware of our own mental health and possibly physical health and working from home and all that jazz. Uh, currently, I think Leanne's worked out that it's $5.2 billion is, dollars is what it's worth right mm -hmm. now. And by 2030, it's expected to reach 8 billion. Yeah, that is what is predictive. But of course, with the shifts in workplace attitudes, the aging workforce that we've talked before on the podcast, technology, AI, that seems to be in the headlines at the minute, Al, doesn't it? You know, what does the future hold for well-being and how could organisations remain 
healthy and of course relevant as we step into and this is a frightening thing Al, the second quarter of the 21st century Hang on, 2025 what? the first quarter 25 percent of the 21st century is just gone it's done Ooh, I'm liking, I'm liking you're getting all corporate and talking about Q2 of the 21st century. Uh, it's inspired by a corp talk last week. <laughs> if you haven't listened Q2. to last week's <laughs> If you didn't listen to last week's episode, go back and uh, you'll find there's about five minutes where we're really, really daft and it still makes us chuckle, I think, if we listen back to it. Let's, let's put a pin in that for a minute, Al, shall we? What do we need to do first? Well, first of all, we need to go and meet our amazing guests. So we first of all got Ryan Hopkins, who's from Deloitte. Then we've got Louise Aston, who's from Business in the Community. And finally, we've got Jason Richmond from Headspace. It's possibly you've heard of that app. But before we go into all of that, it's our favourite time of the week. It's the News Roundup. Cue the jingle. What have you got, Leah? I have a new word. New word alert. Shift shock. You need to be careful <laughs> with this one. Shift shock. <laughs> so many things are going through my head right now. Basically, it means it's like feeling remorse as a new hire. Like you've you've changed jobs, you've changed organizations, you've made that shift, and it's a bit of a shock. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Grass is always greener, and all that kind of thing. Indeed. Yeah. So um. So yeah. This this popped up. Um. It is actually a TikTok trend. It's got about sixteen thousand views on the talk, as I like to call it so far. But yeah, basically, this is how it's been defined. Um. Also called new highs remorse, the term refers to the feeling of regret or unhappiness new employees might feel when a job is different to what they're led to believe in the hiring process. And that can often lead to workers to job hop back to their old job or indeed to a new one. Um, after a very short period of time, reasons could be put on boarding, shady recruitment or a lack of employer brand. Now, I totally get this and I think there is definitely... Some business leaders out there who might be guilty of making it sound like everything's cool and everything's great in the recruitment process, when actually maybe it's a bit of a volatile time. And and while it might seem counterintuitive, you know, you want to sell the dream, you're probably actually better having a very honest and open conversation with that new person coming into your business or potentially coming into your business and saying, look, this is kind of what's going down at the minute. This is a plan we've got to make things better. We see you being a central part of that. Are you in? Rather than, it's all great, it's fine. And then your first day, you're like, shit, man, what's going on here? The building's on fire. <laughs> there's there's a great quote, this, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it's never as bad as you think, but it's also never as good as you think. I think that's probably a really smart thing to bear in mind if you are going to be changing jobs, starting a business, uh, get, getting a promotion, creating something at work. It's never as good as you think it is, but it's never as bad as you think it is. Except when it is. Except when it is. <laughs> <laughs> just don't lie don't lie to people coming into your business you know you want them to trust you that's not a good start what else you got leah well something that i thought was quite interesting actually i was on i was on the old linkedin as i've mentioned i like to dip my toe in from LinkedIn time to time um, and i came across a post by the founder and ceo of a startup called Springworks at Kartik Mandeville, who said that they had received more than 3,000 applications for just one job posting in a matter of hours, like 24, 48 hours. Nuts. When we bear in mind, yes, the job market is slowing. Yes, there have been mass redundancies. But, you know, equally, there still is this talent shortage and this fight for talent 
out there that organizations are still feeling. So to get that volume of applications was kind of like, huh, what's going on there then? Um, so I thought, well, why not just go to Mr. Mandeville and ask, ask him himself? And did you? Yes, I did. I love your news run up because you just pull these names out. You're a bit like um, Bob Mortimer when it comes to names. It seems like you make them up. And now we're talking to Reginald Marmalade. These are just amazing <laughs> names. I want to be called Kartik Mandeville. That is just a cool name. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So you spoke to you spoke to Kartik. I did. Let's hear directly from him. I think in recent times, uh, layoffs and then hiring freeze across you know different companies, especially in the tech startup sector, uh, has kind of uh, changed the job market. Many companies have been calling people back to offices, which means people are either resigning or increasingly looking for remote options. So even though we have not really done main paid postings per se, apart from maybe a, you know, a couple, and even then we have been kind of getting these resumes and it's not just the 3,000 but actually the entire 13,000 this month and we have not seen this before so I think this is uh, partly us plus the overall you know, macro situation in the, you know, in the country and in the world. I think it goes to show we, we are obviously very bullish on remote work because that's what we do. Uh, we work remote. We don't even work from home. We work from Airbnbs or Booking.com places like we are right now. Uh, so we're very bullish. And so we it makes sense to us. But then I'm worried that that might be one of those, I forget what the word is, confirmation bias or something, where because we are, we think remote is the future. Where did you get that word? I think, I'd be, I, I think you might have used it. I wrote it down. <laughs> but I'm going to use that and impress her at some point. Very um, But so, so I think perhaps it's possible that we believe it's down to being a remote position because we believe in remote work. But either way, amazing. Good work there. Good work's on. Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, whether it's whatever it is, if it's if it's differentiating you in the market right now, being fully remote and not, you know, being completely cool and championing that, and that means that you get a massive amount of applications for for a job role, then happy days, you know. I'm sure you say something about that. When it comes to sales and marketing, your value individual, what's it called? Value proposition? Recruitment is marketing, sales and marketing. Um, and so if all everyone's offering remote opportunities in your sector, perhaps it's worthwhile just trying saying this is in office only. And then you just differentiate yourself and you're not in competition then with other people. But this isn't necessarily a recruitment workshop, although we would be willing to do one of those if you're interested. So uh, get onto LinkedIn, let me know, or let Leanne know, or just check the show notes below and you've got our contact details. Anyway. Yeah, but I should just say thank you very much to Kartik for um, sending those voice notes over. And we hope to have him on the podcast very soon. Very cool. Very cool. Got anything else, Lee? Well, for our final segment, Al, I know you enjoyed the uh, Corp Talk bingo last week. Bit of fun. Um, so I thought I'd come up with something else before. Yeah. Um, so this is actually inspired by Ashley Menzies Babatunde, another fabulous name. Oh, I love it. I could say that all day. Like yeah. Babaganoush is another word that I really like saying. Babaganoush. So I think that's why I like yeah. Babatunde. Babatunde. Anyway. Ashley Menzies Babatunde. Awesome, awesome woman. She has a podcast on the HubSpot Podcast Network called No Straight Path, our sibling show. She did an episode recently on what it is to be an accidental entrepreneur, something that she identifies with, didn't necessarily set out to go and be an entrepreneur, but has found herself in that position. I guess I kind of relate to that, although I still see myself more as a consultant than necessarily an entrepreneur. Al, there was no accident between you going into business, was there? Um, probably. I don't really? know. Um, I don't, well, basically I failed my A-levels. So the only thing I could do was teaching maths and I hated that. I hated children. I hate maths. So in terms of Venn diagrams, then 
that didn't work. And then I got sacked from being a pub manager. So it was kind of like, not necessarily accidental, but the only path for me, really, because I was, was kind of like unemployable, which I think is probably quite quite a common trait with entrepreneurs is that particularly mm. after a while, I could never work for anyone now because one, I'm too lazy. Two, I like working whenever I like working. And three, someone tells me what to do. I'll be like, no chance. I'm not doing that. Anyway, what? sorry. I feel like I've got off on a, on a rant. So, yes. So, yeah, Ashley was basically saying, you know, building a business, you can sometimes find yourself there unexpectedly. It's hard work. There's lots of challenges, lots of uncertainty. And of course, these situations that I've I've translated this, Ashley probably wouldn't say this. I've translated this as to kind of those moments, and we both had these, where you look around and go, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? You're like, how how did we get here? Like both good and bad moments, like, like WTF, WTF moments, but yeah. So I thought... I'll do some research on this. Turns out we're not alone, Al. Looked at Entrepreneur Magazine, posted um, basically a list of some crazy shit that can happen to you as a business owner. So it's sharing time, Al. Are you ready? I'll read through a couple, see what speaks to you. If you have a story, share. Um, So the first kind of WTF moment of being an entrepreneur, an accidental entrepreneur, taking an all-important phone call from a very weird place. Yeah, I think we were on... we When we used to live in a place called Esteponna in... um, um, in Spain, southern Spain, we once rented, it was really cheap in off-season, we once rented this, like, yacht with, like, all the skipper oh, and everything. Yeah. So we ended up in the middle of this, middle of um, of the bay watching these dolphins, and I remember taking a phone call from, I think it was the bank manager or something, and I was standing with one foot up on, on, on something, on this rope on the yacht, talking, and I felt like, this is A, really strange, but B, have I made it? I'm on a yacht talking to my business manager. So that's one of them. And there is another one where I had to uh, negotiate something fairly sensitive whilst I was indisposed in a public toilet. But that actually oh. sounded really weird. But I was doing, I know, I wondered where that was leading. I was doing never mind. I was I was otherwise engaged, literally in the public toilet. Excellent. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Uh, my second one, there's always some dickhead. <laughs> you, have you got one of these? I've got thousands of these. <laughs> There's just, I think there's just always when you're, when you're in it, maybe either self-employed or trying to create content, um, there always just be, seems to be some dickhead that seems to be doing really well. And you're like, how? Mm. Like, you're not even very nice. Mm. Um, yeah, I won't mention anyone in particular, but definitely many people that I think I don't, I don't know how you're successful, um, but fair enough. Um, I will try and take some lessons from that. That was brilliant. Well done, Leah. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. So let's get on with the main section because it is hot as balls in here. Oof. Yes. So if you do see the sweat, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We'll try and edit it out and post. I say that. I don't have a clue how to do that. <laughs> okay. So on to the main section. Okay, so today we are talking about the future of well-being. We're saying what are the current trends? What's here to stay? Will generational differences have an impact on this kind of like strategy? What about AI and technology? How does it all fit in? Well, we've got three amazing guests who are going to talk you all the way through that. We do. Our first guest is Ryan Hopkins, who is a future of well-being leader at Deloitte. So a pretty good person to ask about this kind of stuff. He is also a TEDx speaker and author and on a mission to engage one billion people in the betterment of well-being. My name is Ryan Hopkins. I'm the future of well-being leader for Deloitte. 
I am working with workplaces around the world to develop culture where people can thrive, not bikes, bananas or one-off events. Developing work where people can turn up and be their best selves, where the individual and the organisation thrives. Our second guest is Louise Aston. She is an award-winning high-profile ambassador for health and well-being in the UK with a career dedicated to tackling the stigma that surrounds mental health, including topics such as suicide, domestic abuse, sleep, recovery. Louise is currently the Wellbeing Campaign Director at Business in the Community. So let's go meet Louise and hear more about Business in the Community. Yeah, so Business in the Community, we are the um, Prince's Responsible Business um, Movement. So basically our membership, we actually reach 20% of UK employees. Most of our members are large corporates. And what we do is we convene businesses to solve really challenging issues, which they could never do on their own, but in terms of collectively working towards common goals. Our final guest is Jason Richmond. Jason is VP of Sales Solutions at Headspace Health. A specialist in behavioral health, he actually started his career as a therapist before moving into organizational level interventions. Here's Jason to explain more. My name is Jason Richmond, and I'm, as you said, uh, vice president of our uh, clinical solutions area at Headspace Health. Um, I've been in the behavioral health field for the last 25 years. Uh, the first part of that journey as a therapist myself. And so I practiced for a dozen years. And, uh, and then I moved into um, the medical insurance carrier side of uh, behavioral health. And so I was basically working to help to develop and deliver behavioral health products to the commercial market. We also have a few cameos from other guests, so look out for those. So Leanne's taken all of the insights from our amazing guests and she's identified seven future trends of well-being. I have, and these trends are all things that business owners can capitalize on today to build resilient and high-performing teams in the future. So are you ready for our first trend, Al? I am. The ongoing destigmatization of mental health. Catchy. Well, you know, I'm not I'm not the marketer here, Al. I'm sure you can come up with a, a catchy name. But you know, like you were saying earlier, since the pandemic especially, mental health is becoming much more of a day-to-day -day conversation. It doesn't have the same stigma it did 50 years ago or even 100 years ago. I think it was in our... Um, our mental health awareness episode we actually talked about that didn't we kind of how the last hundred years it has changed significantly from you know you would be, be classified as a lunatic and put in an asylum um, to now being a part of, of day to day conversation um, and organizational life as well so experts are predicting that organizations that continue this mission will not only remain relevant in the market to both consumers and prospective talent, but will reap the commercial benefits too. So crucially, this type of commitment from business owners and leaders is one of the few things that will drive systemic change. I think, did we use the example, Al, of, um, of like accidents in the workplace in a podcast recently about kind of how this, uh, this accountability needs to sit with the leaders? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we talked about it. We've talked about it several times, I think, uh, certainly in the psychological safety. We've touched on it last week as well, which is definitely one worth going back and listening to. Yeah, so I think this is a real opportunity for business owners, for business leaders. So let's hear more on that from Louise, who is Wellbeing Campaign Director at Business in the Community. We're in a situation right now where employers have two choices. They can do nothing, which quite frankly, with, you know, kind of low productivity, 
high attrition, deteriorating men- employee mental health is not a sustainable option. Or they can redefine success, which is about prioritizing people and unlocking the value of a thriving workforce. And this hasn't been done before. And now we've got the data to actually really substantiate it. So this is very much about tackling the systemic causes of poor mental health. It's not about taking a kind of tactical, reactive um, individual, well, approach to individuals. This is about a whole system, whole organizational approach. This type of shift will completely flip mental health on its head because instead of talking about coming from a place of of deficit um, and then getting just kind of getting people to the point of surviving if we're flipping that to a more positive psychology approach and saying we're actually going to work really hard to take people from surviving to thriving the impact not only on individuals but on organizations as well is going to be massive and this is exactly what the foundation of this landmark report produced by business in the community and McKinsey Health was all about prioritise people, unlocking the value of a thriving workforce. What's also really cool about this report is it's been developed for CFOs in collaboration with CFOs. So it really does create a very compelling economic value proposition for placing employees and well-being at the heart of organisational strategy. I'm really excited about this report. It's a real landmark report It's the first time ever that all the aggregated data that supports thriving employees has been analysed in one place. We've been fortunate enough to have the McKinsey Health Institute as our research partner. So basically, they have actually analysed that data. So that's the first in terms of looking at the benefits of prioritizing thriving people. But also what's very special about this report is we convened an advisory board of chief financial officers. So this is, they've very much shaped the report along with business and the community's leadership team and obviously with the support of the McKinsey Health Institute. And what the report highlights, which is super exciting, is the size of the prize for getting this right in terms of truly enabling thriving employers. So the research shows that actually the UK economic value of improved employee well-being could be between 130 to 370 billion per year, or that's 6 to 17% of UK's gross domestic product. But that's the equivalent of four, between four to 12,000 pounds per UK employee. So think of that size of the prize. This could solve the cost of living crisis. I mean, it's phenomenal. So this is really groundbreaking. And, you know, historically, The focus has always been looking at the cost of poor mental health and we've turned this on its head. So very excited. So Ryan from Deloitte agrees that there's a lucrative opportunity for organisations to instigate a radical new approach to employee well-being. 
He also quotes research from Liz Hampton, who's the director in Deloitte's strategy consulting practice, Monitor Deloitte. Comes in three chunks. We do lots of writing and development of all of the reports and thought leadership. And I, Liz Hampton, the team have done some incredible work since 2017, the, the Deloitte Mental Health Report in the UK. The one pound spent, five pound back. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Don't think that was me. It wasn't, but I'm building on that work. And what we do with organizations is help them understand. First and foremost, we did a big piece of work with the Institute of Directors. We asked 30,000 leaders in the UK, are you measuring the effectiveness of your well-being efforts? We found out that only one to 2% of them were. We're all doing these amazing things, providing solutions, applications, support, catching people when they fall, which is the right thing to do. But we have no idea how effective any of these things are. What gets measured, gets incentivized, gets improved. So this is the first thing, and we need to understand the needs, interests, concerns, expectations, and risks of the people. And there's also the measurement, the implementation, the change and stuff like that. Like any decent measure in the workplace, if we launch an initiative and we don't have a concerted change effort around it, we don't track the effectiveness of it and measure it or set up the data capability, it's not going to work. As I mentioned before, we have come a pretty long way in a short period of time when it comes to mental health. Bear in mind, you know, 18th century mental health was attributed to the supernatural, to witchcraft. It wasn't really until the 20th century where we saw psychologists like Freud and Skinner um, that really started to think about these as more mental health conditions. Um, and even then, it was 1983 that the Mental Health Act in the UK was introduced. Even then, it needed significant updates in 2007. And in 2021, the UK government have again pledged to relook at the Mental Health Act to remove any inequity for individuals. So this stuff is fairly new. And we are asking organisations to play a leading role in this radical rethink of mental health and well-being at work. But as Ryan explains, the data is continuing to show us that happy employees are very, very good for business. It's something that's spun up on the side. It's seen as a nice to have. The, under, the understanding that this is something that drives performance is relatively new. And there is data everywhere but we're almost suffering from too much of it and we don't know which piece to look at. And the C-suite have 100 priorities, keeping the business afloat 10%, inflation, the war in Ukraine, everything. How do you know what to focus on? And if it's something that's seen as a benefit, a solution, a webinar, it's going to remain that. But it isn't. It's not something that's added. Wellbeing is often about looking at the work, the systems, the processes, the structure, the experience, the policies, the technology not a benefit that is a part of it but it's not in its entirety from the research that we're doing and that the oxford university wellbeing research center are doing as well uh, with bt and they found that a one point increase in happiness resulted in a 12 percent increase in sales so we're starting to draw out the real clear links with massive studies which are undeniable and i think that data is becoming more and more clear and the understanding is developing but like anything, it takes time and the perception is that it's a soft, fluffy thing that's on the side, but it is so far from that. So Jason Richmond, who's the VP of Sales Solution at Headspace Health, he agrees that this shift from negative to positive connotations is the future of well-being. So he said this is a conscious consideration of the Headspace Health brand. You know, Headspace is obviously, a, a has a direct-to-consumer portion of that and people have a choice um, in the app stores of m multiple different um, tools. What I would say is that um, Headspace has really been around the longest. 
what I think that, that we do really well is, is the quality of the meditation and mindfulness that we deliver. Um, I think it's, it's of the highest quality. I also think that the, the brand and the feel is very appealing to people. It, it's upbeat. It's got a, a very um, sort of positive feel to it. And so I don't necessarily, I think when people are looking around for meditation and mindfulness, it's not because they want to feel less happy. I think that the pandemic, which again, I hate using that P word, but it had such a big impact on everything. The pandemic has really brought to the forefront mental health. And it means that particularly on the younger generations, the Zeds, um, and probably the, they're called Alphas, the ones behind that, um, mm-hmm. they seem relatively happy to talk about their own mental health. And so for the first time, probably since World War II, we, us older generations and everyone, employers, leaders, everyone can kind of get an idea of what mental health is and why it is such an important aspect and something to understand. I think this, this ability to be vulnerable and to talk about your own mental health on video, on TikTok, on whatever, is probably going to be one of the key things that's going to destigmatize this whole problem of mental health. 20 years ago, if you said, I'm feeling depressed, everyone would be like, oh my God, I'm not talking to Arthur anymore. He's he might go and kill himself. Now people are happy to say, or seem happier, to, to, to disclose that they are struggling a little bit. So our guests have shared their own experiences of mental health. So we're going to hear from Louise first, then Jason, and then Ryan. So my background's actually creative. So I trained as a textile designer for fashion and started my career as a fashion buyer at Marks & Spencer. I transitioned into campaigning by taking health into fashion for um, a national skin cancer prevention campaign. And then I really got the campaigning bug. And, you know, in terms of purpose, my values. And then basically my brother was sadly diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that's when I entered the mental health space very early on in terms of tackling stigma And from there, you know, I was creative director at the government's marketing and communications agency. Five a day was mine. Talk to Frank. Don't give up giving up tobacco education. So really that background in terms of my passion, my beliefs, my values, making a difference has led me to what I do now. Once I started studying it, I found the human mind fascinating. I found human behavior very interesting. Why do people do the things they do? Um, all, all interest me. And then, and so I pursued psychology. I had a, a terrific professor in my undergrad that taught an experiential psychology course. And um, I took that and it was, it was a course that allowed, it was very small. There were only like a dozen people in the class and it allowed us to really sort of practice a bit of vulnerability in almost like a group counseling um, session. Uh, for an entire semester. And then we did a, um, a trip, uh, an experiential trip where we went whitewater rafting and rappelling to like challenge your own personal fears um, as part of that experience. Uh, that hooked me at that point, seeing, seeing the ability to sort of connect with people, I wanted to do more. And that led me to a graduate degree and then a practice so that um, I, the ability to be able to connect with someone, I can't solve their problems. I'm not I'm not responsible for their problems, but to be able to, to, to connect with someone when they truly need that uh, was very meaningful to me. I felt like that was a, a worthwhile pursuit. Uh, all stemmed from about 13 years ago. I had an accident. I broke my leg and my ankle and I was depressed and ended up in quite a dark place. And Coming back from there, I've been through 
I've had bulimia for years, anxiety on and off, medicated for the best part of 10 years. And as I pieced myself back together again and again, I was learning what worked and what didn't and moved into the wellbeing space about six years ago. So our second future trend is employee engagement and connection. Employee engagement, oh, Leanne's favorite word. <laughs> employee engagement without a doubt, is the focus of the future in terms of well-being. Employee engagement and connection is all about fostering the sense of belonging, community, and social connection within organisations, as Louise explains. So this goes beyond well-being, okay? So in terms of being thriving, that is when people can absolutely be at their best. So it's about optimising well-being, engagement. It's about sharing purpose and value with your organization because a lot all of this is about organizations putting thriving people at the heart of their organizational purpose and business strategy and obviously you've also got to align that with culture to make it real. Louise also goes on to explain that this isn't something for large corporations the IBMs and Microsoft of the world this is for smaller businesses too and it's going to really help them thrive. Yeah, well, we were very mindful about the report and our actions being relevant to SMEs. And actually, as part of the process of developing prioritized people report, we actually involved um, a handful of SMEs to ensure that basically it was accessible and relevant. And in terms of the tools that we've got coming down the line that will be launched in September, Again, they will be relevant and accessible for SMEs. So, you know, I would say, we would say that prioritizing people, unlock the value of a thriving workforce is relevant to all organizations, regardless of size or sector. I think arguably employee engagement may be even more relevant to smaller or owner-led businesses particularly those that are looking to scale and exit. We've mentioned before about ESGs, environmental, social governance is a framework used to assess organizational business practices and something that is growing in popularity and importance. The, the S of ESG social, this is where employee engagement firmly sits. And it's really about looking at any way that we can create environments in which people can experience positive mental health and positive performance. And when it comes to investors, we are increasingly seeing now that this type of data in terms of employee engagement and well-being is being requested as part of the due diligence. And again, that sits under that, that S of, of ESGs. So something that is really, really important for any business owner that is looking to scale and potentially exit their company. The other thing to bear in mind, as we learned from Andrew Berry a few episodes ago from Mind, it is actually a legal obligation that you carry out a uh, stress assessment um, on your within your workforce every year, which I don't think many small organizations know about, let alone do. Um, and there is also some very significant talk of the government making um, ESGs as a data reporting point mandatory for all businesses in the UK. So if employee engagement is not currently on your radar, it's time to start thinking about it. Here's Louise to tell us more. I suppose why another reason why this agenda cannot be ignored is basically is there's 
growing anticipation that investors are going to be demanding that businesses report on the social of ESG as they do on the environmental and governance dimensions. So businesses, whether they like it or not, are going to have this imposed on them at some point down the line. So this is an, an, a great opportunity to anticipate and respond to this trend in investor pressure by proactively investing in employee health and well-being and treat the kind of concept of a thriving workforce as a critical capital asset on balance sheets and in turn is to publicly disclose. Louise went on to explain that organisations that focus and report on ESG efforts are more likely to have a competitive employer brand. So the vision is that more businesses will start to publicly report on thriving people. So this again is linked to putting the S, the social, into ESG. That is about accountability, transparency. Obviously, there will be business benefits in terms of attracting and retaining talent. Basically, in terms of making thriving people, making well-being non-negotiable and business as usual, is we know that job seekers and employees are becoming more discerning about the employers they want to work for. So basically, I'd like to see happier, healthier and more engaged workforces and a happier UK. ESG is also important in terms of consumer brands. The research shows us that Gen Z shoppers demand sustainable retail. The majority of Gen Z shoppers prefer to buy sustainable brands and most are willing to spend 10% more on sustainable products. A Pew Research Centre survey finds that millennials and Gen Z stand out for their high levels of engagement within the issue of climate change. And one third of millennials often or exclusively use investment products that take ESG factors into account. This is also the same for 19% of Gen Zers. Now, Gen Zers, a lot of Gen Zers who responded to this survey, they've said that they experience stress or sadness or anger or frustration due to climate change and its related disasters. We've, we're sitting in Sicily at 44 degrees. There's, there's wildfires in the north of Italy. There's hailstone. The size of golf balls. Have you seen that on YouTube? I haven't. No, I haven't. I'm going to have to have a look. But the whole point is that this isn't something that we can just ignore anymore. And Gen Zers, because they're the future of the, of, of the world, they are so passionate about this. More than 50% of the respondees express this fear and anxiety about the future. And Gen Z demonstrate a greater concern than other generations. So this is probably why Gen Z are prioritizing their mental health and demanding that employers do the same. I asked Jason about this. Yeah, a, a great question. So um, I, I would say a little bit, a little bit. Yes, I think that it is a generational thing. It's it's definitely true that the generation that's coming up um, now is much more open to talk about uh, the mental health struggles that they may have, and actually to feel almost a sense of um, entitlement from their employer to say, "Yes, you should care about my mental health, and yes, you should offer services that help me to address good mental health." I think that's a that's a healthy progression. Yeah, employee engagement and specifically ESG sitting behind that strategy is really going to be an impactful thing you can do as a business owner, not only to improve the well-being of your team, but to really increase your competitiveness in the market. So our third future trend is metrics and measurement. I don't think this is a shock, maybe, Al. <laughs> 
Nope, you like metrics, measurements and data. That's what you live for. I do, I do. And our experts like it too. Why? Because, well, fluffy is often a word that is used to describe HR, people and culture, well-being professionals and psychologists. I can admit there may well be and are some products and services out there that may fall into that fluffy category or perhaps as wellness washing. And the reason for that is there is no evidence, there's no data behind those interventions to measure their impact. The focus moving forward has to be on measuring the impact of various wellbeing interventions through data and through metrics. Louise and colleagues at Business in the Community and McKinsey Health recognise this. And in building the, this flagship people report, made sure to include the most metric-driven of all C-suite, the CFO. So the primary audience for the report are CFOs. As I said, they've shaped the report. And why CFOs? Well, obviously, they hold the purse strings but also CFOs are really interested in creating um, value and obviously to do with ESG and putting the S, the social, into ESG. That is all about creating um, value and people are the most critical asset, but also human capital is a really important part of enterprise value. Jason agrees that there is an increasing understanding that good mental health affects the bottom line. It is, it is um, way more um, impactful from a financial standpoint than I think anybody ever knew. Now, there's a growing recognition within employers that uh, good mental health uh, affects the bottom line. But for years and years, mental health was considered just sort of a check the box kind of benefit that yes, we need to do something for them, but let's let's offer something and then not think about it again. And I, I would say over the last decade or so, there's been this growing recognition that, that people are um, more productive when they are in a good, pardon the pun, headspace. The reality is that um, product, uh, productivity, absenteeism, presenteeism, which is coming to work, but not being really present while you're at work, therefore not very effective, um, and then high turnover rates uh, of staff are all very expensive propositions for an, an employer. Uh, and that, none of that takes into account the um, cost of comorbidity. And so we all comorbidity. know- Comorbidity. Yeah, so comorbidity, if you think about the fact that um, employers know that the, the, the most expensive sort of physical conditions that someone may have, like uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, musculoskeletal issues. Those are all very expensive things for, for a workforce and for an employer. Um, we know that there's a mental health component to all of those. Any, any new diagnosis that someone gets medically uh, creates an emotional experience. People have an emotional experience um, related to their physical self. And we see comorbidities like co-occurrences of depression with, uh, let's say, diabetes and with heart disease. And there have been plenty of studies that have been done that show um, that have done two different cohorts, those that are addressing the mental health issue and those that have done nothing to address the mental health issue. And the um, recovery rates of those that address their mental health issue, um, the recovery rates for their physical condition 
is much higher at a much faster rate. So it takes longer and costs more if you don't address the mental health issue first. We also asked Ryan from Deloitte, and he agreed the future of well-being lies in showing CFOs the money. It's seen as this soft, fluffy thing, but it's so, so far from that. Mm-hmm. And that's the work that I'm doing to make sure I'm attaching pound notes to not prioritizing it in the workplace, to show the C-suite how much money they're losing. And then we say, okay, do we want to do something about this? And inevitably the answer is yes when they see mm-hmm. it put down quite simply. Wellbeing is so much more than a set of policies or a solution or an application. It's something that's integrated in every single part of the business. It's cross-functional, includes every part of the business. We help organizations like set up the strategy, which is super interesting. So, and the biggest effect I've had on wellbeing previously was working with the IT function in one organization where we focus on using tech sustainably, use to develop all these tips and stuff like that, and end up saving the business two and a half million hours in a year. Two and a half million hours in the year. We've already talked about this. You wouldn't do marketing without checking your ROA and checking your checking your metrics and making sure it's actually working. Why are we Why are we not doing the same with well-being? Yes, there are some apps out there. Leanne alluded to them before. They're just nice to have. They're going. Oh yeah, we've got something in place. Are you actually checking your ROA? Are you actually seeing that it's saving you money? Because if it's not, stop doing it and do something else. Well-being is a science. Here's Ryan. What we can start to do is treat it like a science. You wouldn't go to marketing and say, what's the engagement this month? Or go to sales and say, what's the sales numbers looking like? Or go to ops and say, how's the, I don't know, the square meterage of the office sites? You go to our and say, how is this? And we say, I'm not sure. So if we really want to move it forwards, we're going to have to start marking ourselves a little bit. And that's uncomfortable. But to give it the, the attention and the budget it deserves, then we need to start doing that and tracking the effectiveness of our efforts. And we will unfortunately see that a lot of what we're doing is not helping and potentially exacerbating issues. The world's best applications and solutions, when I was at my lowest, I wouldn't have wanted. I wouldn't have been able to. I wouldn't have been in the headspace. What I needed was the love and attention of the people that I care the most about. The most... The most, the most important part of my day now is, was, I'd block my lunch out of my calendar and I'd give my nan a call every day. And that for me is more valuable than anything else. Um, so what we can do is measure it and get a couple of measures and get the C-suite to understand the importance. So simply put, if you're going to do one thing to create a burning platform to change well-being, it would be to look at the attrition, the voluntary attrition, and then find out the reason for people leaving. And there's a lot of mental health report 2022, as I said by Liz Hampson team, some incredible work. About 62% of people that left their jobs last year or are planning to next year is due to poor mental health, stress, workload, etc. Mm. You apply that percentage to the voluntary attrition and work out how much each person leaving your business costs when it costs about seven and a half months salary to hire and retrain someone plus the increased cost of salary in the market with inflation being 10%, you've now got X figure per person times that by 62% of the people that left the business and you've got a 5,000 person organization, you've got about 35 million. That is your platform. And you can say, okay, so, all right, so people are leaving because of workload stress, stress being, workload being the biggest cause of stress in the workplace, double anything else. So how do we address this? 
Then you understand the nicer, the needs, interests, concerns, expectations, and risks. Biggest stress is non-stop work culture. Can't switch off. Okay, so how do we address that? One or two things, attach a measurement, a clear KPI to each, treat it like the science, that it is, give it the respect it deserves, and do this, and we say, okay, so we're going to aim for a 0.2% reduction in voluntary attrition over a year. We do that, we measure it, and then we earn the right to do more and we start to open up the scope to develop a truly flexible, psychologically safe, a workplace where we belong, all of those sorts of things actually develop well-being. Because well-being is an outcome. It's not the focus. The more you talk about it, the less likely you are to affect it. It's about configuring the work and everything else around the people because what you need is different to what I need. And when we do this properly and we encourage everyone to become come in and be their self and share their things and we get the leaders to exemplify this amazing behavior and we measure it all. Okay, so number four is personalization and customization. Oh my God, as a marketer coming to this, this area, it's kind of strange how similar some of these fundamentals are. With an increasingly diverse workforce who want different things like hybrid working, work from home, uh, remote, all that kind of thing, we have to make sure that we personalize the way work experience in order to stay competitive. This isn't, oh, well, look, you know, Dorothy wants to work from home once a week, so maybe we should let her know because if you don't, then Dorothy may go off and find herself a position at a company that does do that kind of thing. So well-being is no different. And Jason from Headspace explains that on-demand services will play a huge role in personalizing and customizing support. You ask, yeah. So um, as you're aware, Andy started the company in, I think it was 2010 here in the UK. And um, it was the first um, digital mindfulness meditation app that was available to the masses. And it's really um, grown since then. And what happened is um, about a year and a half ago, Headspace merged with a US-based company that was called Ginger. And Ginger was an on-demand virtual mental health care delivery system. And the idea of this was the fact that Headspace, as you know, um, was really a leader in mindfulness and meditation, self-directed tools for people to build resiliency and, um, and really create a health, emotionally healthy lifestyle. And what it, the, what, what it lacked was when it encountered people who needed more care or a higher level of care, um, it just, it, there, there was really nothing for them in that, in that instance. And so the merger between these two organizations allows Headspace to expand its reach from just being a self-directed tool to actually now providing services like behavioral health counseling, which is available on demand, or coaching, which is available on demand, and then counseling for those who need clinical levels of service. We also have the ability to um, fully um, deliver EAP services. And so for groups that are um, unhappy with their current EAP and perhaps we're looking to replace that, we have the ability to provide work-life services and management consultations, critical incident responses, those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, Headspace, which is a hugely well-known brand, known for mindfulness meditation done digitally through an app, now is one of the most comprehensive mental health solutions on the market because it's from uh, mindfulness meditation all the way through complex mental health conditions that they're able to offer services. And the idea um, is that mental health is a journey, right? It's never linear. It's never, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always a um, one size doesn't fit all kind of proposition. 
everybody's experience is unique. And, and so we wanted to be able to develop a solution that was going to really take people wherever that journey goes. And that always to have something for everybody and um, the ability to deliver that to a workforce really uh, was just the next logical um, step for our company. So Jason went on to say that it, that he believes that private sector organizations like Headspace Health, where he's the VP of sales, uh, will play a key role in the future of mental health care, often filling the demand and helping services to be more accessible to the majority. Our mental health care system, both in the UK and the US, um, is inadequate at best. And, and I, I say that with all deference because I'm, I've been a part of it for 25 years. It just simply needs to evolve. And that is what is, is going on in, in real time. It's evolving. It's becoming better. Um, and so part of, part of what we offer that's different is that it's truly on demand. Within, within the very moment that someone decides that it's time for me to get help, and that's a difficult decision. When they do and they raise their hand, we, are, we can connect them with a behavioral health coach within two minutes or less. The average time of coach response in our entire book of business right now, and that's millions of people, um, is 51 seconds. Within 51 seconds of you saying, I need to talk to somebody. And then we're connecting you. In the old system, you'd have to call somewhere, maybe get a referral from your GP. Maybe you would have to um, uh, wait for callbacks. You would then schedule an appointment that might be days or weeks out. By that time, the amount of distance between when you experienced the thing that motivated you to get help and now you get to talk about it could be weeks and weeks. People drop out. They lose motivation. They simply don't do it. Our solution is offered immediately in that moment. There is some fabulous research by Rand Europe led by Christian Van Stolk um, who appeared on our podcast back in the Britain's Healthiest Workplace episode. I want to say January, Al. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, but yeah, Christian and his team at Ran Europe have really dived into customization and personalization in the world of well-being and well-being support. So when we spoke with Christian, he shared some of his research findings. Let's hear very quickly about that. Yeah, so 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 the idea was um, really is that um, at, at, at the, the, there is sort of a um, you know sort of there are a number of preconceptions about um, you know what the world of hybrid working will look like. So on the one extreme, you will have people. Well, everybody has to come back into the office because we, um, you know, we uh, you know that that is tends to be better for business outcomes. You'll have more social interactions there. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there is a, a school of thought that says, well, look, um, you know, remote working has sort of worked during the um, pandemic so um, we need to introduce more remote working or allow people to work be working as flexibly as as we can and of course as always uh, the the truth is somewhere in the middle right and so so this study really tried to look at um, what the world of hybrid working looks like to some extent but also try to uh, link work behaviors that we're seeing uh, in this new way of working to health and well-being outcomes and the way that we could do that is because we had two interesting data sources one is Microsoft um, Viva analytics data. So basically anything you do on your computer more or less is captured by somebody, right? And so Microsoft, uh, if you use Microsoft 365, collects all of that information in one place. So I can tell, you, I, I, I can uh, if I have your data, Leanna, for instance, I would know when you're in a meeting or in a podcast with me, as, as it happens, um, when you're actually sending an email, um, what time you're sending this email, um, whether you're working late, or what time you start working and your computer switches on. Um, 
all of these things are captured. Um, so this, this sounds a little bit scary, but um, th don't worry about that too much. And of course, on the other side, what we had is we had very detailed health records of um, Vitality's employees, because of course, um, Vitality collects a huge amount of information and we could merge these data sets to some extent. So that shows the idea was really to look at uh, certain types of work behaviors and then look at what the health and well-being impacts of that work behavior would be. So for instance, you could say sending emails late in the evening is bad for health and well-being. Uh, or you get up really early and you start um, working, that is bad for your health and well-being, or being an excessive number of meetings during the day might be bad for your health and well-being. These were the hypotheses that we were testing. As it happens um, in this research, what we showed is that there are really um, different categories of workers, first of all, to, to, is, is, that's important to think about. So, you know, even within an organization, there are a variety of different subcultures. And these um, workers typically like to work in slightly different ways. And that's interesting. And if you dig below that, uh, there is no real uniform uh, type of work behaviors that leads to uh, optimal health and well-being outcomes. So what this means is really that there's a high degree of personalization that is required within a workforce. So having a blanket ban on emails after seven or eight in the evening uh, might seem like a good idea to achieve executive, but ultimately you probably um, are, 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 are sort of impacting negatively and the, the you know a certain group of workers within your organization. So that seems to to me to push a lot of the responsibility down to line managers in terms of managing their staff effectively and and trying to encourage. Uh, work behaviors uh, that lead to better health and well-being and of course understanding really what staff need as well so that's that's really what this study is about and of course personalization and individualization is going to feed directly into diversity and inclusion we don't have the time to dive into that in more detail here but to find out more check out our edi 101 and neurodiversity 101 episodes we'll leave a link for these and christian's research in the show notes so the fifth trend that Leanne has identified is this holistic approach to well-being so it's great that we're starting to talk more around more about health in the workplace but we need a more holistic view of this whole thing. We need to be encompassed mental, emotional, social, um, all that kind of aspects of well-being. So Jason from Headspace agrees and he says that this is why there are so many more programs coming up there which are more comprehensive around wellness than just health. It's also influenced very intentionally, I think, by our society, which has said, um, let's not treat mental health any different than we treat physical health. And if you think about it, for years and years, we've been, we, we've all accepted the truth that if you want to stay physically well and be preventative about it, um, you know that you need to eat right, you need to get enough sleep, uh, you need to exercise regularly, right? Everybody knows that and we all accept it. No one challenges that. We talk about it freely and openly and we see people engaging in it all around us. We have not extended that same mindset to our emotional well-being. And the reality is that there are plenty of preventative things that we can be doing and should be doing in order to stay emotionally well. And, and we're just now on the cusp of, of I think, making that um, truly uh, table stakes where people it, uh, readily accept, e easily accept the fact that, yes, of course, I should be meditating. I should be um, you know, having good social experiences. I should um, maintain good boundaries with my work. There, there are things that we can um, sort of normalize in the, in the workforce and in, in our populations that would allow people to start, to start taking care of their, their, themselves 
which in turn will reduce the number of escalations, the number of symptom development, all of those things. It's, it's that movement that you're experiencing that I think is a, a, very, um, it's a very good thing for our, for our society. And it's not just about how we approach our own health. It's really important to, to, to change how we approach the health of others. Um, it is perfectly acceptable for everybody to say, um, you know what, I'm struggling right now. Or um, I'm, I'm seeing a therapist. Or, or perhaps um, people to, to um, normalize the idea. Maybe even ask each other about that. You know, if you knew if you had a, a, a colleague or a coworker who um, had just recently had a knee surgery, when you saw that person again, you'd inquire about how their knee is. We never ask people who have been missed because of a personal experience. We don't talk about that because we're uncomfortable ourselves uh, at times talking about it. We don't want to make someone else uncomfortable. What if we, what if this change that you and I are describing, what if that turned into an, a, a situation where it's perfectly acceptable for me to ask you about your mental health? You, you and I just met. Uh, if I open the conversation with um, how you're doing emotionally, you would think that's a little odd. What if we lived in a world where that wasn't the case, that we actually cared about that with one another? I think that would be delightful. It would be delightful, Jason. It, it really would. But, you know, this type of change does take time and building these types of relationships takes time, which is why it's so important for business leaders, for business owners to build their, their self-awareness and their emotional intelligence so they can build these rich coaching-based relationships with the members of their team. I asked Jason more about these sort of difficult conversations and his response was brilliant. In that perfect world, we could have those conversations and it would be very comfortable. In the world we in, we're in right now, it's not, it's not quite there, right? So subtly and, and comfortably being able to have a conversation with someone um, about them potentially needing um, some additional support is, is sensitive. You have to be really sort of thoughtful and careful. My rule of thumb is that, you know, those types of conversations typically um, require a bit of a relationship. In order for, for you to give me that kind of advice, we'd have to know each other well enough for me to, to think that it was genuine coming from you and for me to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable with you to say, yeah, I am struggling and I would welcome that advice. That leads us nicely onto our sixth trend, which again, I'm sure will not necessarily come as a surprise to regular listeners of the podcast. Trend number six, leadership and culture. So we're currently finishing off our own research at the moment at Oblong that looks at the relationships between leadership constructs or behaviors, employee engagement and well-being, specifically in hybrid and remote work environments. Um, again, it's a catchy title, I'm working on it. Um, but an early finding that we've found already is that employees are really looking for leaders to be investing in their own well-being as leaders. So employees want to see those positive behaviors role modeled in the leaders in their business. And Jason agrees that this type of role modeling is crucial in the future of well-being. The great thing about our um, current society is the fact that um, there are so many tools and resources that are out there, many of which are available on a direct-to-consumer way, kind of like Headspace is. Members can go and, and pay for a, a subscription themselves to Headspace um, if they like. So your ability to um, mention of what a meaningful impact it's had for you, as an example, maybe signposting for that person to say, oh, that's interesting. Or if they are interested, then they'll ask you a, a question. Well, tell me how that works. I've never meditated. What, what, is that, what is that like? What does mindfulness mean? Or what does it mean to you? Or how do you use it? I think the great thing about the tool is the fact that it has... It's such a broad tool in that 
um, it's, it has focused music. So if you uh, just want to, to leverage music, if you want to work on um, your movement and start having more movement, physical movement in your life, there are tools built within to help motivate you for those things. Um, same is true with sleep, which is one of the most significant aspects of our mental health. Um, there are sleep casts and sleep tools that help people get a good night's sleep. And so it's just so, um, there's so much application for it that your ability to be able to share with someone how it's impacted you. And especially if you can do so in a way that's not like um, overly, that doesn't require them to be overly vulnerable. I think that that might be a good way to do it. Sleep's an easy thing to talk about. Um, exercise is an easy thing to talk about. So, you know, I, I might start there and then you'll be able to work in the idea. Oh, and by the way, it also helps people with anxiety. <laughs> it also helps people with depression. I think that would be uh, a brilliant way to start. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. And you know, it's not just leaders that need to role model these behaviours. It's frontline managers too, because these frontline managers are often the people that will set the tone for our culture. As somebody I spoke to recently said, you know, line managers are often the culture keepers, which I quite liked. One of my favourite definitions is work, of workplace culture is that workplace culture is defined by the worst behaviours tolerated. So we know that any kind of workplace that lacks basic civility, respect, that is going to lead to emotional ex exhaustion, to greater conflict. And of course, you know, withdrawal, which which those three things actually together are the key pillars of, of burnout. So we really need to train our managers not only to support people in their own well-being, um, but also from a commercial and legal point of view, risk any grievances um, appearing as well in the workplace. So managers don't just need to roll one of these behaviours, they need to police them too. Here's Jason for more on training managers. Yes, that is the that is the challenge for anybody who's managing people. And it's so funny because the the reality is, is that the frontline manager is often the first person who recognizes when someone's in trouble. Uh, they they're the person who's overseeing the work that someone does. Um, if someone needs time off, they have to come to this person. If, if there are um, if there's conflict between that person and a coworker. The manager, frontline manager is going to be the first to hear about that, right? So the manager has a front row seat to impairment, so to speak. And, and um, we train people, we train supervisors and managers on how to have a, a constructive conversation with people. The ability to be able to um, sit down with someone and in a very non-judgmental way, talk about the behaviors that, that you've seen, talk about um, what you've witnessed, and then open the door for a conversation. You would be amazed at 
at, at the amount of information and how easily people share if they feel like you're asking because you really care. If you're noticing, hey, you know what? I, I'm worried about you. Um, here's what I've been seeing. Um, how are things? You would be amazed at how many people are responsive to that. How many people are like, oh my gosh, thank you for asking. Um, or you'll get enough information for you to take that next step. Um, I don't think that, I, I think you said, where's, where's the line? The line to me is that a manager should care. A manager should intervene and express that care, point them to the many benefits that an employer is offering, kind of like Headspace Health or an EAP or any other benefit that might be appropriate at that moment. I don't want to go on about this, but we were Samaritans, which basically meant they were professional. Well, not professional, but we were, we were volunteer listeners in a listening service in, in the UK. And one of the greatest things about that was explaining how you can sort of distance yourself from the, some of the potentially horrific stuff you hear on the phone from callers um, and your everyday life. And I won't go into the ins and outs, but if you are interested in that, then look up Samaritans because it is really, really interesting. So I asked Jason from Headspace a bit more about how non-trained people can establish these kind of boundaries. The line really is not getting involved in whatever the issue is and not taking ownership of whatever the issue is. Because... Um, Therapists are taught uh, as part of our training to have really good boundaries and to, and to not um, own somebody else's, else's issues. A non-trained person who asks how someone's doing and then hears of very sad or, ter or horrific kinds of situations that someone might be experiencing at that time, it's hard not to want to say, oh my gosh, how can I help? How can I, you know, like, oh, you're going to be kicked out of your home? Can I give you a loan? That would be a terrible thing for a manager to do, right? Don't, you can't own the problem. You can care and you can help them get to a place where they can get help. But I think a good, healthy boundary between a manager and, and um, someone they're managing is, is probably pretty healthy. So our culture audit, the RX7, is based on a lot of well-being research and literature. And one of the foundations that comes up every single time we do an audit with a business is resources. And that includes providing manageable workloads, which I know is really tough, especially in today's climate, especially with the ongoing fight for talent. After speaking to Ryan, it really does seem to be a universal challenge. The biggest cause of stress in the workplace is workload, not a lack of anything. And the traditional approach to fixing people in the workplace is to give them more to do. Whereas we should consider if you're a glass of water and your glass is already full up to the top, pouring something else to the glass, you're just going to make a mess on the table. You are, you are the mess on the table. <laughs> All we can do is actually look at the glass and consider what's in there. If this piece is too large, how do we configure the work properly? How do we consider the digital boundaries? How can we give people space, time, flexibility, autonomy? So if you're going to do anything today, it's something so simple, but if you auto schedule your meetings to finish five, 10 minutes early, and you've got six meetings per day, say, do you know how much time you save per year? Nearly six work weeks per year per person. So when we configure the tech and the environment around us, this gives us space. Because you already know that an apple was better than a packet of crisps. That getting off your butt is better than sitting on it all day. That calling a loved one is better than being isolated and head down all day. We just need the space to do it. And that would be the biggest gift that you can give someone today. And then you can use these amazing solutions, applications, webinars, all these incredible people here that are changing the game. Right? 
But the precursor to all of that is a bit of space. We do that and then we give people, here you go, here you go, Steve. Here's some time. You're allowed to take that time, prioritize that time, build your day around it. We trust you to focus on outcomes. Managing by outcome seems to me like the obvious solution to any managers or leaders that have beef around around remote working, around technology. You know, I think, yeah, fair enough. People could have more than one job if you don't have eyes on them. People might go on these hush trips. Do you remember that word the week from a while back, Al? I do. Uh, you know, they could go abroad and work remotely and you have no idea. They could be using chat GPT for a proportion of their work and you have no idea. But if we're managing by outcomes from a commercial perspective, we know what we need to achieve to stay on track. So how those outcomes are achieved doesn't really matter, you know, in the in the big picture of things. My concern more comes from if there are people out there that are working more than one job remotely, the impact that's going to have on them. And that could be another job. It could be a significant side hustle. Um, you know, how is that going to impact on their resilience, on their families, on their recovery time, um, and on managing those conflicting priorities? That I think is something we need to be very, very aware of. Ryan also brings up some of these very topical conversations that are happening around working from home and the integration of work and life. Because you can take a horse to the well-being water, but you can't make it drink. So you can create the space and do all these things, the business can, but then it's down to the individual but you can encourage them, you can show them the way you can get leaders to exemplify this behavior. So this for me is the work, the future of work that we want to work in. So tech is the issue, but also the solution. 89% of people are working outside traditional work hours now, but I think it's 64% of people are doing personal stuff inside of work hours. So find me someone that hasn't done their ironing while on a company all hands and I'll find you a liar. And that's cool. We just need to configure the work, forget work-life balance, it doesn't exist life which work is one part of and it certainly isn't the first part and if we're going to use work-life balance let's use life work because if you need to prioritize the things that you need to do to be your best self each day because as my mate RuPaul says if you don't love yourself how the hell are you gonna love somebody else amen Al I told you RuPaul Charles is one of the greatest philosophers of our time and if you won't believe me then believe the future of well-being leader at Deloitte I do believe you, I do. And I just it did make me smile when I was going through the notes of this scene that uh, Ryan brought up to. <laughs> I love it. No list on future trends is going to be complete without us talking about AI. So number seven is technology and AI. The one thing we haven't quite worked out yet is the sort of the idea of privacy, the idea of how do we not share information, particularly if you're using a cloud-based uh, language, large language model where you are potentially uploading sensitive information to it. That's something we're not wasted out. But, but to be fair, it's only really been commercially usable for the last sort of six, eight months. So that will come. I asked Jason about the technology and the AI behind Headspace, the app. Um, our, our use of um, augmented intelligence and augmented meaning that um, we have artificial intelligence that's running in the background of everything we do. Our coaching interaction is done via a discreet and confidential chat communication. So it feels very much like texting with a family member or a friend. Every single text uh, and chat that happens on our system go, rolls into our AI and it feeds this incredibly large database that we've built over the last decade. What that does, we build algorithms and predictive models that that information bounces up against. That information produces a meaningful insight to our care team in real time while they're working with members. The care team then 
gets that information and decides the appropriate time, how to contextualize that, how to make that a natural part of the conversation. So we don't want the AI actually doing any of the care. I want our care team doing that, but we want to power them with absolutely everything that we can in that process. And that's, that's really what distinguishes us. So it's the immediacy, it's the broad nature of what we do, and it's the technology. So technology and AI is something we have been chatting to our guests about for a very long time. So I had a dive back into the Truth and Lies archive and found some clips, some that you've heard, some that you haven't, from previous guests. First, we have Dr. Wayne Sherman from Hogan Assessment Systems. Right, most countries have anti-discrimination hiring laws where you can't hire, because that's the real concern, right? The concern is that these AI will um, cause adverse impact in, in, in hiring. And there is some legitimate concern there. So uh, the, there's, <laughs> and, and the topic of AI is so expansive that there's so many different tools that, 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 that go in and that, that are part of this. But some of the tools that I've looked at, automatic resume readers, um, years ago, gosh, it's been several years now, um, Amazon had a tool that was recruiting engineers and they, they had to get rid of it because um, the, the tool, the, the AI tool that they built uh, was it was just picking men. It was just like, oh, we know what makes a good engineer, a man. And then it was just, you know, finding men and, and only trying to recruit men for these for these jobs. Um, and, and that's a problem of that's a, that's actually not a problem of the algorithm. Like people blame the algorithm. Oh, the algorithms, you know, or the algorithms are the real problem. Um, there's uh, this one uh, really well-known uh, woman who's written several books about sort of like the war against algorithms and all that. And it's, it's, the algorithms aren't the problem, right? The algorithms uh, are just trying to reflect what you tell it to reflect, right? So if you say, this is what I want in this job, then it will go, it will go find that so incredibly well that it will uncover biases that perhaps you didn't even know that you had. And so that's what these algorithms are really doing. And in the case of the Amazon case, there's other cases too, where uh, there's uh, phone interviews or video interviews, right? And um, some great reporting by some, some investigative journalists who actually trained actors to do phone interviews, do these automated interviews over and over again, the same way, right? To do the exact same uh, interview over and over again. But they would change little things, right? They would change something in the background, like whether there would be a picture or whether it would be dark or whether it would be well lit or whether they were wearing a burqa or whether they're wearing a scarf or whether they're wearing glasses. They would change all these little features and they would get very different personality scores based on those little feature changes, which tells you that there's really something problematic about using AI in that way. You shouldn't get a different personality score if you're wearing glasses or not. We actually have a ton of data on this. There's no, there's no difference in whether we wear glasses or not in your personality. So... So that's one of the, that's one of the concerns is that people are using these tools in ways that are really um, biased, really inaccurate. So those are our seven future well-being trends, and I think could be summarized by well-being is here to stay so long as we start to prove its impact and ROI. What do you think, Al? Yeah, I mean, ROI is everything in business, isn't it? You're not going to do anything without ROI. So let's just, let's once and for all put this to bed and go, well-being has an ROI. You just need to find it. Okay, rant over. <laughs> so to recap those seven future trends for you, trend number one, the ongoing destigmatization of mental health. Trend number two, employee engagement and connection is key. Trend number three, metrics and measurement. Trend number four, work, the workplace needs to be personalized and customized to individuals. 
Trend number five, we need to take a more holistic approach to well-being. Trend number six, it's all about leadership and culture. And trend number seven, technology and AI will continue to change the world, including the world of well-being. Well, there you have it. It's at this stage of the podcast. Normally say that's a lot. but that's a lot. Was, Ooh, that's there a was lot. only seven. And um, we've done, I think we've done a good deep dive into each one of those. Uh, if you're interested in connecting with some of our guests, there's more. There's, there's all the details in the show notes. But in their own words, this is how you can find out a bit more about Louise from Business in the Community. So basically go to Business in the Community's website, bitc.org.uk. You'll find the report which has got an accompanying deck. So if you want to engage your own executive C-suite, you can do that. There's also a collection of really engaging videos from a variety of business leaders, including Javier Echave, David Wright, Chief Engineer at National Grid, and our own CEO, Mary McLeod. There's also an elevator pitch animation, which is very useful. So everything to do with the campaign is on BITC's website and there's more coming down the line in September. And this is how you can find out more from Ryan from Deloitte. Me, I'm the host of the Audacious Goals Club, LinkedIn live series, bringing together amazing people to be incredibly audacious. And I developed a wellbeing video series called Toilet Break Wellbeing. Because I think it's this big, complex subject, but actually wellbeing is no little thing. It's made up of small things. Mm. And... For me, it's as simple as going to the toilet. We go eight times every day. So I made this little video series and I've done about 70 episodes so far. Yeah, so hit me up on LinkedIn, Ryan Hopkins, um, or Future of Wellbeing on Instagram and TikTok. And yeah, I hope you found this helpful. I appreciate you for having me. And we will, of course, leave the links to both Jason and Headspace Health in the show notes so you can find out more. So those are our seven future trends on wellbeing that we are already starting to see. And we will see more and more over the next two to five years. I personally am excited. I'm excited that there is a conversation around well-being that is more dominant and public in the world of work. I'm also very excited that this theme of evidence and data is really starting to gain traction and so many more voices in the well-being space are making this point. So hurrah to them. So thank you to Louise, Ryan and Jason. It has been wonderful to have you on the show and share your incredible insights. Next week, we are bringing you a slightly slower summer vibe. It'll be our first episode in August. And um, we hope you're taking time out to relax, to recharge. Um, if you've been listening to us at all, hopefully you are. So we thought next week we will bring you some lighter entertainment and maybe some sources of, what be the right word, Al? Self-care? reflection yeah. and all in uh, all in uh, in poetry we'll be writing the entire thing and doing our own home written poetry poems we might we even have a pina colada in hand <laughs> we'll look forward to it see you next week bye bye bye